Erica's the one who wanted to start coming to church. I didn't. <laughs> um, I guess uh, the biggest reason was I didn't see much point in religion. Um, basically, I believed perception's reality. So in my mind, I could make up, you know, I could make up a God and have it be just as reasonable as an actual religion. Um, and, but I mean, I, I did believe that there was a God and funny enough, I, I did think that there, I did believe in Jesus Christ. I just didn't think that it was necessary to worship Jesus Christ. Um, so yeah, Erica, that was in 2018. Erica started getting a little more serious about, you know, the Christian faith and we couldn't really have conversations without feeling like we were being disrespectful of each other's views. And I realized that maybe I wasn't as open-minded as I thought I was. One of the reasons I actually supported going to church was um, because my first time there, I didn't feel like I was judged. And some of the first words that are said are, you know, we're broken and we're messy. And I'm like, yeah, that's totally, that's totally it. And um, I felt like there was valuable insights that anybody could apply, whether you're a Christian or not. But she was getting something out of it that I wasn't, even though I was pretty adamant that like, you know, you didn't have to follow anything or believe in anything, you know, other than just being a good person. You know, when she was going through the small group that she was doing, um, I was always curious because like, I don't know, I felt like something changed in her and and I would always kind of like ask her, like, what do you guys talk about? Like, what'd you get from it? And, and I really, I wanted to know, but I didn't realize that like, you actually have to do it to know. So um, I decided to partake in small group and uh, what stuck out to me was the Truth Project, because that's what my big hang-up was, like, you know, who's to say? So I was joined it to see what the Christian view was on truth. And then one of the first things that really hit me, that uh, when Jesus was brought to uh, Pontius Pilate, he said that he came to testify to the truth. And you know, basically anyone who, who listens to him listens to the truth, something along those lines. Um, and Pilate scoffed, you know, you know, what is truth? So I started thinking about what my hangup was on why I didn't want to, why I was willing, willfully not choosing to worship Jesus and the reason was self-pursuit like I want to be an artist I want to be a writer for the longest time and the kind of art and writing that I did I couldn't do if I followed Jesus you know I wanted to be serious about it and if if I didn't if it didn't click with me, I wanted her to know like I actually tried. So, um, instead of staying up late and working on art, I was getting up early and reading the Bible. And, you know, and then I started coming to church even when Erica had to work. When I <clears throat> was willing to let go of what I wanted to do and pursue that, I actually gained 
like a sense of peace that I thought would only be acquired if I achieved, you know, recognition as an artist. To me, being surrendered is being willing to put aside what you want. For me, was art and not just putting it aside, but when I pick it back up, whatever your gift is, being in surrender to it is using it, not for you, not for yourself. And I mean, I'm trying to figure that out. Looking back on my life, like the parable of the seed, thinking of that, um, at first, like I was for sure, like the seed that was on the path, I got snatched up and I didn't understand the word. I, and, you know, then when I first came to the faith, I felt like I felt free. And, um, and uh, so I felt like the seed that, you know, got in the good soil. So I'm like, I'm not gonna lose this. And then, you know, COVID happened and I'm working from home all the time. And I just, I got out of the pattern of things and I was suddenly felt like I was the seed that, you know, is withering up. You know, I, I think about it differently now. Like I'm not taking turns being different seeds. I am a seed in good soil going through the seasons. So, and I feel, I feel good about that, even when it gets hard, so. Thankful to Justin for sharing his, his heart and his testimony. You know, we, we appreciate testimonies because what they do is they paint a picture right, of what the gospel does in somebody's life. And, and, and in the case of Justin, it, it very clearly moved him from, from a place of torment and separation from God, not just now, but for all of eternity, to a place of, of purpose in this life and, and eternity with Christ forever. Right? I mean, this is the reality of the gospel. And so with, with Justin, you know, we, we get the elements of here, here's who I was and, and how I struggled. And here's how I was blind to the truth. And, and here's, here's how God started working in my life. And, and when I came to him, here's what I had to surrender. But then here's what's so good now that I'm, I'm in Christ and, and what gives me purpose and passion moving forward. This is, listen, this is what we are about as a church is sharing the, the gospel of Jesus Christ to move people from death to life. And I want to give just um, one, just, just all the credit in the world to, to Justin for, for being bold and willing to, to share his testimony with us. And we'll actually get to celebrate next week. Um, if you happen to be here for a service, um, we get to celebrate next week Justin's baptism. Right? So not only do we see this, this picture uh, of him sharing his faith, but we're going to get to see him follow God in obedience through baptism. And it's going to be awesome. And, and we're going to celebrate that. And I tell you what, the work we do here matters. The ministry that you do matters. Um, I'd love to say that, that Pastor David and I get to claim responsibility for, for the salvation um, that is real for Justin, but, but the truth is this. No. Like, I mean, that, that, that started well before with, with some, some people that were faithful in praying for co-workers and ministering to co-workers. And, and through that faithful ministering and, and praying for co-workers, um, softened somebody's heart enough to join an exploratory small group that someone was faithful to lead. And in that exploratory small group was, was truth that was shared and prayers that were shared that got a person to the point of saying, you know what? She said, I I'm going to surrender to Jesus. And we got to baptize her, what, just a couple of years ago. 
And then knowing her heart, Erica's heart, to say, you know what? I'm going to pray for and long and wrestle with God so that my husband can have the same faith. And her faithfulness to pray over the course of time and to just be obedient to the things God put in front of her, not to nag, but to just be obedient in the way that God called her to go, that that led to this point of fruition for Justin where he, he ultimately found himself surrendering um, to this Jesus Christ who he knew was real but, but didn't think he needed to worship and, and the changing of his whole life. Listen, the ministry that we do here, the ministry that you do, your prayers, your intentionality, your obedience to be a part of, of community in small groups, those things matter and they make a difference. And I just want to thank you and I want to give you some encouragement. If you are like Erica, in uh, that you are desperately praying for someone, a spouse, a child, um, friends, to, to come to know faith. I want to encourage you, don't give up. Don't quit. Right? We see fruit in that testimony, and we'll see fruit in the baptism next week of the fact that God is faithful and he works through the power of our prayers. And so don't stop. Don't give up. Okay? Uh, one other thing I want to say to you before we open God's word this morning. Um, we've already had just a great time of worship. Um, but, but I just, I want to in, encourage you in this. David alluded to this. This has been a ridiculously goofy time in our world. Right? I mean, there are lots of things going on. Lots of chaos abounds. But specifically, politically, there is lots of chaos. And I don't know where you land, which side of the aisle you land on. And, and, and quite frankly, I'm uninterested at this exact moment in time. Right? But what I am interested in, what I do want to encourage you in, is this. You belong to the kingdom of God. You are representatives of God most high. First and foremost, your citizenship is in heaven. And you are called to glorify God with your behavior, with your words, with your actions. And I just want to encourage you in that. I want to encourage you um, in, in the fact that you are a citizen of heaven. And that what we do here, first and foremost, is to be ambassadors of the one that sent us. We speak for God. When we say, come back, there is a God in heaven who is no longer counting his sins against you because of Jesus Christ. Come back. That's our primary purpose. And I want to encourage you to walk in that. I want to encourage you to pray in that. I want to encourage you, listen, oh my goodness, to post on Facebook in that. Right? You know what I'm talking about. Right? But, but as you do these things, I want to encourage you to do them for the glory of God. And only for the glory of God. All right? Okay. Also, I'm better. Um, so lots of you here online, whatever, have been um, praying and reaching out and asking um, because of last week uh, I had to bow out at the last minute. Um, I'm betting if I were a gambler, I'd say I had a kidney stone that passed and I will never have a kidney stone problem again. And that's what I'm sticking with. Um, even though I'm not sure that's quite true. But it was not awesome. But I feel much better now, and I thank you for your prayers. And Pastor David did just such a great job stepping in. I told him um, that uh, as I listened to that sermon this week, that, that even if he had planned and prepped for a week or so getting that ready, it would have been exceptional, right? But especially considering he had about 20 minutes um, to, to um, organize his thoughts that, that God had been working in him. Um, it was very, very good. Um, and I was impressed that with 20 minutes notice, he could still preach 45 full minutes. And I gave him grief about that first service, and then I preached 50. So I'm going to go ahead and get started, and hopefully we can beat that this time around. All right. Um, but no, I like to kid Pastor David, but, but it is such a blessing um, to have him here and to work with him and, and to just labor in ministry with him and um, pray with him. And, and uh, I always learn so much um, under his teaching. So just very grateful for that. 
All right. We continue today, though, in our series, Long Story Short. And uh, what we're doing in this series, remember, <coughs> excuse me, is, is we're looking at signposts, right? This is God's story, and we're trying to understand how God is working through the story of Scripture um, and how he's working to woo and redeem, and what this story ultimately is about is his glory and how we interact with it. All right? And so um, there's been lots of signposts along the way. We're, we're over halfway now in this series. But a couple of weeks ago, we got to the point where God called Israel, um, not just as a people group, but he said, now as a people group, I am making you a special nation. And he entered into covenant commitment with them, right? And this covenant was them as he said, hey, I will be your God. And through your obedience, through your righteousness, I will bless you, I will protect you, I will make you known, and the whole world will see that you are something special. And God said, the reason I'll do that for you, Israel, is because you are going to be a holy nation of priests. That everyone will look at you, and through your words, your actions, they will know that I am the one true God of the universe that desires and deserves their worship. Right? By the way, that's kind of our role as Christians. That's why I say, hey, don't forget that your citizenship is in heaven. Right? Don't forget that your role is to bring glory to God in everything you say and post and do. Right? Because we, the church, are a holy nation and we serve as holy priests to the one true God of the universe. We point people to God, we point people to Jesus. Or at least we should. But that's what he did. He, he calls them into covenant. He, he explains. And, and then we talked about how because of their disobedience and their rejecting God, they wandered. And then we talked about how because of their obedience in a new generation, as Joshua led them, that they were obedient and they were able to enter the land and conquer it. And that brings us to the point um, that we left off which is with Israel marching around the city of Jericho. God says, this is how you're going to attack Jericho. March around it every day. On the seventh day, march around it seven times. Blow your trumpets. The walls will fall. And then he says this, which we hate. Go in and kill them all. I mean, we have got to stop for a second and wrestle with that because we hate that. It offends our sensibilities. That God says, when I cause their defenses to, to fall, your job, Israel, if you're going to be obedient to me, and, I, and God already showed them disobedience causes wandering for 40 years. Now they're ready to be obedient. He says, okay, so obedience now looks like this, Israel. I will make the walls fall, and you will go in, and you will wipe them out. Spare no one except for Rahab and her family. And we have to stop here, and we have to talk about why that is, right? We have to wrestle with that, because we always sit here and we say, God is so good, and God is so loving, and God is so gracious, and God is so merciful, and God is so gentle. And then we read, go in and kill them all. And there's tension, and there's tension and so I, I can't park here for too long because we have a signpost to get through. But, but I, I want to at least acknowledge, I, I, know, I, I know what that does in your gut. I get it. I also wrestle sometimes with, with how harsh that seems. I mean, I trust God and I believe God, but I still wrestle with how hard that is. And, and so I just, by way of explanation, we're going to talk more about this in our podcast this week. Um, and we're going to really dig into Judges this week in our podcast. So I'd encourage you to listen for more answers and things on this. But, but by way of, of easy explanation right now, here's what I want to say. God is not capricious. God is not flaky. <laughs> God is not prone to fits of rage. God is not overly harsh. God is true, and he is righteous, and he is just. That's what we know. 
And, and we wrestle with how is he just and fair and good and loving, and yet people are still wiped out. And I get that. But, but what you have to understand is when, when we look at the story of Scripture, what we have in front of us is the story of how God sets apart Israel and works through Israel. God is active in all of the nations of the world, not just Israel. God is working in all of the nations of the world, not just Israel. Right? The work of God is not limited to the pages we have. This is what he chose for us to have, but he is active and at work in other nations. Similar to the one example we have is how God is actively at work in Nineveh. And he calls Jonah as a prophet to go to a place, not where Israel is, but to go to a place uh, where the Ninevites are, to go to Nineveh and preach that, that you are doing wrong and you must choose righteousness or God will judge you. Nineveh repents and they follow God and God blesses them instead of brings judgment on them. And so we see an example there of the way that God is working in all nations, not just Israel. And God was doing that in Jericho. God was working to call them. He was working to woo them. But they continued to rebel. They continued to sin grotesquely. And ultimately, because of their continued disobedience and their continued sin, God brings judgment on them. And he is right to do so, even though it offends our sensibilities. Listen, God is not capricious. There is one source of fuel for the holy wrath of God, and that is sin. That's it. Sin is the only source of fuel for the holy wrath of God. He doesn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed. He's not just in a bad mood. But sin causes the holy wrath of God. And so this is what we see as we get in there. And like I said, I know it's hard I know, and we'll dig in more to that in the podcast if you're interested. Okay? But, they march into the promised land. The walls fall. They take Jericho. And, and then they continue to conquer the land. That's where we left off last time. They continue to conquer the land. And here's the thing. They're obedient, but it isn't perfect obedience. They're generally obedient as a nation, but they're not individually obedient as tribes, right? Um, think about it this way. You might have a family, and in general, the family is obedient to God, but you got that one kid that's just rebellious, right? Your family is obedient, but this... So as a nation, they're obedient. Following Joshua, they're obedient, but it's not perfect obedience, and so here's what happens. They don't drive out the people like they're told to. Look at Judges 2, 2, and 3. For your part, this is what God says. He's talking to Israel now. He says, you were to destroy their altar. See, this is what they were supposed to do. Joshua brought them in, and as a whole nation, all of the tribes together, they attacked Jericho. Then they attacked strongholds. So all of the kings and all of the unified defense, Israel, took on together collectively. But once the collective defense of the land was broken, they split up at God's direction. God said, here, Caleb gets this land, right? Um, Judah gets this land. The, the tribe of Benjamin gets this land. The tribe of Levi, well, they don't get any land, but uh, everybody gets their parcel of land. And then what happens is because there's no more national defense, they are supposed to go and they are supposed to take their part of the land. They are supposed to drive out the enemy. God says, I will fight with you. You will go drive them out, but you'll do it because I am helping you do it. And in driving them out, you are supposed to tear down their altars, destroy their shrines, all of their places of worship that are to false gods, you are to destroy completely. You know what an altar is, right? Like this, we would call even just coming to the front of the church an altar, where, where you would come up and you would kneel down at the altar this is in the New Testament world, and you would just surrender to God. In the Old Testament, an altar was a place where you would come and you would make a sacrifice to God. Well, the Israelites weren't the only ones with altars, because they weren't the only ones that followed a God. It's just that the Israelites were following Yahweh. 
the one true God of the universe, the maker and creator of all things. But all of these other tribes, they were following what we would call small g gods, idols, Baal, Asherah. Right? Later on, um, as we get to the time of Jesus, we'd be talking about Zeus and Hermes, Aphrodite, small g gods, idols, fake gods. And here's, here, listen, listen, I just want to be clear what we're talking about. One of the reasons that God takes this so seriously is we're talking about Satan. A false god is demonic. The kingdom of Satan. And so what God told Israel to do is you go in and I will fight with you and we will drive out the people that live here and you will tear down their worship of the enemy of light. You will tear down their worship of Satan and all of the demons and all of these false gods and all of these idols. You will tear them down and you'll have nothing to do with them. But God says here in Judges 2, you didn't do it. You were supposed to destroy their altars, but you disobeyed. You disobeyed my command. Why'd you do it? I mean, he asked him, he's like, why would you do that? You know about obedience and curses. Why would you do it? So now I declare that I'll no longer fight for you. I'll no longer drive out the people living in the land. They will be thorns in your flesh. And God's will be a constant temptation to you. He says, you had the chance. I was going to fight for you. We were going to drive the people out. And you were going to have no temptation. I was going to be your God. And you were going to follow me. And we were going to be a nation of holy priests to all the people of the earth. But you didn't do it. You didn't drive them out. You didn't tear down the altars. And so now, they're going to be a constant temptation to you. And you know, we still deal with constant temptation today. We don't worship statues. Most of us, I hope, don't worship statues like little figurines. We don't have shrines. But Pastor David has been so good about helping us understand that an idol is anything that wants to take the center of my life. Anything that wants to push God out of the center. That's an idol. Right? Money, work, relationships, lifestyles. Addictions, anything that pushes God out of the center is an idol. We deal with those same temptations that the Israelites deal with. They they dealt with them differently, but they didn't drive the people out. Their obedience wasn't complete. And so God says, now you're going to struggle. Now you're going to struggle. And Joshua knows they're going to struggle. So Joshua says this to them. Right before he dies, Joshua has led them well. Joshua knows the struggle that they're going to have. And he says, listen, listen, guys. You guys know this one. You probably have it on a plaque hanging in your wall somewhere, right? But he says, listen, fear the Lord and serve him, right? If you refuse to serve the Lord wholeheartedly, right, then choose today who you will serve. Would you prefer the gods uh, that your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? Or will it be the gods of the Amorites in the land that you live now? Pick. Me and my house, we will serve the Lord. For me and my family, we will serve the Lord, but you pick. But you'll notice what Joshua says here. Fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Like if you want to serve God, it is going to take all of you. Your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's going to take everything you have. And if you don't think you have that in you, if that doesn't sound appealing to you, then pick something else to serve wholeheartedly. The gods you had before the Euphrates or, or, or the gods of the Amorites whose land you live in now, but pick something. Basically, what, what Joshua is saying here is, listen, you're going to be tempted in this and you can't fall for it. Here's what he's saying. You're going to be tempted to straddle the line. You're going to be tempted to try to love both. You're going to be tempted to try to play with both. And you can't do it. And we have that same temptation, right? We're like, oh yeah, we're all in on God. We love God. We love to sing the songs and we love to have the Bibles and the plaques in the house and we love to do all these things. But we also love all of this other stuff that God says no to. These things that push him out of the middle. And then we come back on Sunday and we say, okay, God, you come back to the middle. And then we go home and on Monday we try to push God out again. And we try to straddle the line. And Joshua says, you can't. Choose today what you're going to do. Are you in or are you out? 
For me and my house, we're in. And Israel says, man, we are in too. And that's what happened in the life of Joshua. And the Israelites served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the leaders who outlived him, those who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried in the land, buried him in the land he had been allocated. So here's the deal. Joshua says, stop trying to have both. Choose this day who you will serve. Is it God? Or is it demonic? You cannot have it both ways. They say, Joshua, we will choose the Lord. And as long as Joshua is living, they do choose to follow the Lord. But then Joshua dies. And this is where the book of Judges takes off. Joshua dies and they fall apart. After that generation died, another generation grew up that did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, and they served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. There's a couple things that we need to see here. First of all, what does it say about the nation of Israel that as soon as Joshua died... As soon as Joshua died, they stopped following God. It it leads me to believe this, and I think it's a problem that sometimes we have. They were following the wrong thing. They should have been following God. Instead, they were following Joshua. And as soon as Joshua was gone, their guiding light was gone. And they fell apart. We have to be really careful about who we follow. I'm thinking about specifically in this very specific time frame in history, right? We we, we have all of this political upheaval and turmoil. And and we aren't a political church. We we work hard not to be. We have political views. All of us do. But, But in this time right here, like we're very intense about the political person or political party that we follow, right? And we're so afraid that when that political person or that political party no longer has the power, that everything is just going to fall apart. Well, you know what? We're not doing anything new. We're just doing the same thing that Israel did. They kept their eyes on the person in charge instead of their eyes on God. And they were lucky and that the person that was in charge was following God. But as soon as that person's gone, they kind of fall by the wayside. Listen, church, we we don't follow a person. We don't follow a system. We follow the Lord. And where he goes, we go. Right? This This is core value number one for Blessed Hope Community Church. We are just trying to keep up with Jesus. Because where he goes, we go. Right? That's what this is. But as soon as Joshua dies and and all of the elders that were with him died, the people just stopped. It says they they did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he'd done. It's not that they didn't remember. It's that they weren't personal. It's like they learned about them in history class. Listen, you know the difference. If you learn about something or if you experienced something. There is going to be a point in time when there are people alive who have no idea what COVID-19 is. And we're going to tell them about this ridiculousness. We're going to tell them all about it. And they're going to be like, okay, cool. I can answer that question on a test. But they won't know because they didn't live through it. They don't know how annoying it was or how frustrating it was or for somehow scary it was or, or how hard it was to navigate. They don't, they don't understand that, right? They won't get it. But they'll be able to answer the question. It's the same thing the Israelites knew They knew about God. They knew about what he had done. They knew about how he brought them out of Egypt with plagues. They knew about the covenant at Mount Sinai. They knew about how he parted the Red Sea and how he he, he stopped up the water in the Jordan River and how they marched around Jericho and the walls fell. They knew it all. But it wasn't personal to them. And here's the thing. We have the same problem. Again, the less we know God personally, the more we start to compromise. We just got to be careful. But here's what happened. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Asherah. And get this, this 
made the Lord burn with anger. That's another thing that that gives us pause in our gut. We thought God was loving. We thought God was slow to anger and abounding in love. We thought God was full of grace and mercy. What is this thing that, that we can make God burn with anger? Listen, God is slow to anger. God is merciful and gracious. But the word of God is clear. We can arouse the anger of God when we are wantonly disobedient. That will arouse the anger of God. And listen to what happens when we arouse the anger of God. Listen to what happened to Israel. The Lord burned with anger against them. So he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies. They were no longer able to resist them. See, Israel used to be powerful. And when God fought for them, they conquered anybody they came up against. But now they can't even stand up against the people that come against them. Why? Get this. Because every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord actually fought against them causing them to be defeated. So it's not just that they're going up against another nation and being outstrength and, no, outmatched. I like outmatched better. It's not like they're going, I'll just edit that out. It's not like they're going up another nation and being outmatched. No, no, no. They're going up against another nation and God, their God, Yahweh God, the God that they are in covenant with is literally fighting against them. So they fail every time. And you're like, why would God do that? Well, God did that to get them to this point. Look at this last line. And the people were in great distress. Can I tell you something? There are times in your life or in the lives of people that you love and care for where God is specifically, purposely working to bring you or them to a place of great distress. Think of the prodigal son who didn't come to his senses until he was starved near to death in a pigsty, wondering what it would be like, how good it would be to eat the pig slop. There are times in our lives where we have rebelled against God, where God is seemingly working against us to the point where we will cry out to him in great distress. People sit down in my office all the time. I have conversations. They're like, well, financially it's going poorly. Relationally it's going poorly. Like all of these things are falling apart. What's going on? You know, why isn't God helping me? And I'm saying, God is helping you. Here's how he's helping you. He's bringing you to ruin. He's bringing you on purpose to a point of great distress. Not because he's mad at you, but because he wants you to cry out to him. He wants you to recognize that he is the only one that can fix what's broken. He wants you to recognize that he is the only one that has the answer for what ails you. He's bringing you to a point of great distress so that you will cry out in your great need for God and you will trust him. Now, again, we hate to think of it that way. We hate to think that God would bring us to this pit of despair, this rock bottom, this awful place. But sometimes God has to bring us there so that we'll recognize, so that we'll listen, so that we'll know our great need. Listen, if you're stuck right now, if you feel like you are in great despair, then I would just encourage you, maybe this is the time when you're ready to cry out to God. Now, crying out to God, though, is more than just saying, okay, God, you win. Crying out to God is saying, okay, God, I will do whatever you put in front of me. I will practice obedience. I will follow you. I will cut sin out of my life, and I will go where you tell me to go. And that's what happens. The Israelites cry out in great distress, in great despair. They cry out to God, and in response, God answers he raises up people called judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. You know the judges. If you've ever read through the book of Judges, you know the stories of Gideon, right? Ehud, Samson. Go home and do this. There is a group from the 90s called the Apologetics. Anybody know the Apologetics? Yeah, okay, they're awful. But they're also awesome. 
at the same time, right? What they've done is they're actually really, really good musicians, and they've taken all of these modern songs, and they've somehow turned them into Bible story songs. And there is a really great song. I was going to play it for you today, but it was like seven minutes, and I was like, ah, that's too long. So I'm going to spend six minutes explaining it to you, and that will be better. But it's the apologetics, and they sing the song, Welcome to the Judges, to the tune of Welcome to the Jungle. And it's worth a listen. Go home, have lunch, watch Welcome to the Judges. You need to watch the video. It's got Lego people. It's awesome. Thank me later. Anyway, he raises up judges. Gideon, Deborah, Barak, Ehud, Samson, right? Uh, we see this, this happen time and time again. He raises up a judge, and that judge rescues the people from their attackers, from their bondage, takes them from being slaves and elevates them to the, to the place that God wanted them to be, which is ruling. Takes them from, from a position of poverty and elevates them to the position of chosen by God. And when the judges came along, they had two jobs. Right? Job one for the judge was to lead people in military victory. Okay, God used to fight for them, but because of their great rebellion, he was now fighting against them. But when he raises up a judge, he begins to fight for them again through the judge. So the judge brings military victory, but the judge also had a job of trying to reorient the people's hearts back to God. Basically, the judge served as a new type of Joshua, bringing people's hearts back to God. And it worked, kind of. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, he was with that judge and he rescued the people from their enemies throughout the judge's lifetime because the Lord took pity on his people who were burdened by oppression and suffering. So whenever God raised up the judge, while the judge was alive, God was with Israel and Israel followed the judge, following God. But when the judge died, the people returned to their corrupt ways. They behaved even worse than those who had lived before them. They went after other gods, serving and worshiping them. And after they refused to give up their evil practices in stubborn ways, guess what happened? God started to fight against them again. And the people would be in distress and they would be subjugated. And then they would shout out to God, help us, help us. God would have compassion on them and would send a judge that would lead this revival of the nation. Then people would follow God while the judge was alive. But then guess what? The judge died. People forgot God. They started serving other gods. They would become oppressed again and God would fight against them and they would get sad and they would get upset and they would shout out, God help us. And this cycle went on and on. That's the book of Judges. In a nutshell, that's this signpost, is that what happens is right? We are fickle when it comes to following God. When it's going well, we tend to remember for a time. But then we start to forget. See, this is, we talked a couple weeks ago about the difference between having God here in your head and having God here in your heart. What happens is these people have God in their head, but not their heart. And so it's easy to compromise, easy to get lost. And then when they get stuck, they shout out to God and God comes along. We do the exact same thing, don't we? Right? When things are going good, we're, we're fine. But what happens after a while? We stop taking the Bible seriously. We stop reading it. Stop praying. Like for everything except meals, we say grace, and we only do that when we're at home. We wouldn't want to be the weird people praying for our meals in public, right? We stop treating church seriously. We only go every now and then, right? We stop being a part of a community of believers, and we get ourselves stuck, and then life happens, and it feels like God's fighting against us, and we cry out, God, help us. And so God does. And then in that strength, we, we get serious about discipleship. We read our Bibles. We pray. We show up. We're involved in community, and things are going better. And when they go better, guess what we start to do? We start to get lazy again. And the cycle just goes. It's the cycle of judges. It's the cycle for us, too. And we need to jump off of this. We need to get off of this train. And, and here are three lessons I think we can learn. I'm going to share these really quickly, and then we'll have a time of communion together. If you're watching um, online, uh, at some point here, it's a, a good time to get your, your juice and, and your bread ready as, as we're going to do um, a time of communion together. Okay? But there are three lessons we can learn in Judges. One, you've got 
to take discipleship seriously. Discipleship is the process where we grow to be more like Jesus. Right? I'm a disciple when I am a follower, not a fan, not a cursory connection, but I am a disciple when I am a follower of Jesus. Where he goes, I go. I am a discipler when I lead other people to follow Jesus where he goes. Parents, you are supposed to be disciplers. Grandparents, you are also supposed to be disciplers. We must take discipleship seriously. We have to be aware of that. The Israelites did not take discipleship seriously. They followed the wrong person. We know this because as soon as the judge died, they stopped following God and they just started going their own way, whichever way they want. Right? They didn't take discipleship seriously. Discipleship is the process where we grow in our love for God, where we grow here at this church in our love for Jesus Christ. Right? And they didn't take it seriously. And they were supposed to. God told them all the way back in Deuteronomy 6, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. Commit yourself wholeheartedly to him. And not just that, but teach it. Teach it to your kids. Teach it. Man, when, when, when you go to bed, when you wake up, when you sit down, when you go for walks, when you go out, when you come in, Deuteronomy 6, that just goes on. Keep teaching it. We need to take discipleship seriously. But the Israelites did not. Even if they followed God, they didn't teach the heart of it. They taught the behavior of it. So the Israelites, every time, they still called themselves God's chosen people. Right? They still, they still said they were under covenant. They still did their sacrifices. They still took the Ark of the Covenant, this symbol of the relationship with God. They still took it with them wherever they go. They just didn't believe it. It wasn't in their hearts because they didn't believe. And they didn't teach. And you know what? We're no better. We're no better. Again, not to be overly political, but it just seems like the time to be this. Like, we get so mad at the culture, right? Whether, it's, whether we call it the culture, whether we call it the left, I don't care what we call it, but we get so mad at it because of the crazy ideas that we think are coming in from that culture. Well, guess what? The only reason that culture has space is because we have not done a good job generationally of discipling. None of us, right? Look, according to Lifeway, the builders, this is our generation, we don't have many of these folks left, 84% of the builders identified as Christians, as followers of Jesus. Now we know that even if somebody claims to be a follower of Jesus, that doesn't mean that they really are, but at least 84% said, hey, I am a Christian, I follow Jesus. These are builders. Like I said, we don't have many of them left. Baby boomers, the generation after, Still pretty good. It fell a little bit, but down to 76%. Three out of every four of them would have said, yes, I am a Christian. We get to Gen X. That's my generation. Okay, I like to think it's the best one, right? Because I'm not as young as some of those other people. I'm certainly not as old as some of those others. We are right in the sweet spot, right? Where are my people at? In the back. Come on, man, you're better than that. Come to the front next time. Doesn't matter. Anyway. 67% of us, two-thirds, still pretty decent. We get to the millennials, we get to millennials, and it drops to under half. 49% of millennials would claim Christ. You see that we've lost 40% in just a few short generations, and we don't know what Gen X will be. These guys are our, our youth now. These are our kids and our youth. We don't know what that percentage will be, but, but all signs point to lower. In fact, uh, one of the things we do know is that in Generation Z, in this generation, there are twice as many atheists as in any other generation. Twice as many of the people, of the young people in this generation say they, they have no belief in God whatsoever. Listen, church, that's on us. 
We can throw our hands up and we can point at the culture all we want, but we are on a steady decline from the builders all the way till now. And it's because we have not taken discipleship discipleship seriously. Personally, as a church, or in our families. We have not done the job to love Jesus more than we love anything else and to teach our children or our churches or our communities to love Jesus more than we love anything else. That's on us. It's important and it's critical. Parents, grandparents, we've got to do better. The elders know we have to do better as a church. I mean, we we take discipleship seriously and we think it's important, but we have to do better. We all have to do better at this. Here at Blessed Hope, we have this discipleship understanding, right, that we want to lead people. The compass there for following God. We want to lead them to follow God deeper and deeper and deeper. The plug there, we want to lead them to connect with community. This is part of discipleship, is connecting with a community of like-minded believers, like Justin was talking about. In the video that will tell you, I pointed there because he's baptized next week, not because he's over there, but in the video, right? That's what Justin's talking about, connecting to a group of like-minded believers that can encourage you along the way, pray for you, right? To grow, to grow deeper in your relationship with God, not to be stagnant, not to just assume you've got enough, but to always crave and desire more. And then the, the feet to live with purpose and on mission, sharing the gospel and helping to disciple others. Listen, this is the process of discipleship. We're working to be better at it. I need you to work to be better at it, individually and in your families, because it matters. That's lesson one we learned from Judges, that we have to take discipleship seriously. Lesson two, listen, we must keep God at the center, because when God is not in the center, morality is a moving target. Without God at the center, morality is a moving target, right? Th- think about this is, this is, we could sum judges up in this one verse. Here's what the time was like, 21, 25. In those days, Israel had no king, so all people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Whatever seemed right, that's what they did. See, it wasn't that they were trying to do evil, I mean, we do this. We look around today to people that act in ways that are appalling to us, and we think to ourselves, they are trying to be evil. No, they are not. They're not trying to be evil. They're not trying to force the rest of the world to be evil along with them. They're actually doing what is right in their own eyes. They're trying to be moral. They're trying to be good people. That's why we have to be careful about how vicious we are, about people that are on other sides of other issues, because they're not trying to be bad people. They're not trying to be evil. They're trying to be good. They just don't know where the center is. They just don't know what they're aiming at. And without God, morality is a moving target. Right? Think about it. I mean, I've told you this before, but I know people in my life, people that are serious, they want to be good people. They're passionate about what doing what they think is right. And they are so unbiblical. And they would look at themselves and they would say, Matt, I am way more moral than you are. They would say that I am immoral because I believe the Bible is true and I believe what it says. They would say, no, 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 that's immoral because you're not letting people just be free to be themselves and to do whatever they want. Right? I would say abortion is wrong. It's immoral. They would say, no, it's not. It's immoral to tell a woman she doesn't have the right to choose for herself. They think they're being moral. They just, listen, we have got to keep God at the center. We've got to keep God at the center because if we let God get out of the center, right, if we let God move, right, if we push him out with something else, then morality becomes a moving target. The book of Judges is actually, and we're going to talk about this in podcast too, but the book of Judges is full of people who thought they were doing right, Israelites, but because because they weren't worshiping God, because God wasn't in the center, what they thought was right was just wrong and weird, right? Listen, the book of Judges is nasty. I mean, if you have never read the book of Judges, read it. You're like, it's every soap opera ever made all rolled up into one, the book of Judges. Here's the deal. There's one story. We're not going to get too far into this, but I I have to tell you because it will make Malia happy. Because this is her favorite Bible story, which is weird. 
Weird. But there's a story about the Levite, the man of God, the Levite and his concubine. And he treats her so poorly that she runs away to her father's house. Right? Now, first of all, he shouldn't have a concubine, but he does. He's just doing what's right. Hey, love is love. He's just doing what's right in his own eyes. And so he goes and he gets her. And he's taking her home. And on the way, it gets late, so he stops in this Israelite village because he's like, well, at least it's an Israelite village. They will treat me well. And he's by the well, and this guy that lives in town comes up and he says, hey, you shouldn't have to be here by the well. Come stay with me. So they all go to his house. They go inside. They get settled down for the night. But the people in town have seen this guy by the well. And you know what they thought? Forgive me. It's in the Bible. We should have sex with him. So they go knock on the door, and they're like, hey, we saw you took that guy into your house. We would like to have sex with him. Send him out. The guy that lives there is like, no, 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 no. Look, he's my guest. You can't do it. They're like, no, it's going to happen. We're going to break down your door if we have to. And so the guy that lives there, doing what's right in his own eyes, says this. Hey, I got an idea. Leave my guest alone. I'll put my daughter out there for you to have They're not totally satisfied with that. So what happens is the Levite, the man of God, also throws his concubine outside. So the mob has its way with these two women. The Levite is so unconcerned that he goes to bed. When they're finished with her, all she has strength to do is crawl to the door, but they're not even there to let her in. And she dies on the doorstep. He gets up the next day, he opens the door, he says, get up, we're leaving. And then he realizes she's dead. (laughs) So he does what's right in his own eyes. He chops her to bits and he sends a piece of her all across the land of Israel. And he says, hey, these people that live here did this detestable thing. Come and kill them for me. And the people doing what's right in their own eyes, they come and do it. These are God's people. And they all think they're being moral because they're doing whatever's right in their own eyes because God is off center. They've moved God away from center and so they're just making it up as they go along the best they can. Last lesson. Listen, we, we've got to take discipleship seriously. We've got to keep God center because if, we, if he moves, if we move him, then morality is a moving target. And, and we have to understand, we have to fight to hold firm because we are naturally prone to wander. We are naturally prone to wander. It happened every time a new generation came along. With Israel, it happens every time a new generation comes along in this country. We are prone to wander. And you know what? Satan is good at trying to help us. See, we have two natures. You know this, right? We have a sin nature. We are born in sin. That's why we say we're broken and messy, right? Nobody's perfect. We can't be. We struggle. But as Christians, we also have a new nature. The Bible tells us that when we come to Christ, we are not just cleaned up, but that we are brand new creations in Christ. The old has died, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. The new has come in its place. We are broken and messy and sinful, yes, but we are made new with the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us. And we are put on a different path that follows God that follows Jesus, that wants to become more and more like him every day. And those two parts of us are intention. Those two parts of us are intention, right? The sin nature tries to drag us backwards. But the Holy Spirit, new nature in us, wants to push forward. Listen, church, the the last thing we can learn from, from judges so we can jump off this cycle is that we are prone to wander. But listen to me. We don't have to. We don't have to. And when we make a mistake, our God is good and gracious to forgive us and push us forward. To forgive us through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in us. To empower us to live new lives. To pull us from sin. There's a story 
um, in, in the Old Testament in one of the minor prophets. I don't know if anybody's familiar with the book of Hosea. But in Hosea, God does this weird thing. He tells his prophet that he wants him to get married. And that he wants him to marry a prostitute. So he says, hey, look, go and marry that prostitute. And Hosea's like, are you sure that's going to go well? And God's like, yeah, probably not, but go do it anyway. So he goes and, and he marries the prostitute, the sexually promiscuous woman. And when they're married, guess what? She is still sexually promiscuous. She sells herself. She's not faithful to her husband that loves her and that made a commitment to her, but she, she, she prostitutes herself. In fact, so much so that she has three children. Um, Hosea is naming the, the children and God tells him what to name them. Uh, name number three in Hebrew, I don't know what it is in Hebrew, but you know what it means? It means not mine. So as Hosea is naming these children, the third child, this daughter, he names not mine because it's not his. And ultimately, she gets herself in a situation where she has sold herself into slavery. She's now um, stuck. It's like she, she's owned by a brothel at this point. And God says to Hosea, now, that's just like you people. I've loved you. I've committed myself to you. I've poured myself out for you. I've given you everything and you keep cheating on me. You keep prostituting yourself for all of these other gods. You are prone to wander. But I want you back. So God, God paints this picture. He does it through Hosea. He says, here's what you're going to do. Go buy her back. Pay the price, redeem her, bring her home to be your wife again. And that's what Hosea does. He brings her home and he says, look, now you are mine. You must live with me. We must be together. Listen, that's what God does for us. We are prone to wander, but God wants us. He does not let us go. He redeems us through the person of Jesus Christ. We are lost We've prostituted ourselves. God has said, I am good and I am gracious and I love you and I, I want you and I desire good for you. Enter into a relationship with me. And we say, okay, God, we're there. But all the while we're looking this way and we're putting other things in the center of our life. But God doesn't abandon us. He says, I'm going to buy you back. For Hosea... To buy Gomer back, he had to, to pay some shekels of weed or some other kinds of things. I don't remember. It's in Hosea 3. To buy us back, God had to send his one and only son to die a sinner's death on the cross, to take the punishment that was on me onto himself. And he had to shed his blood so that we could be made right. We are prone to wander, but God is gracious and kind. And that's what we remember when we take communion together. You've got your, your communion cups ready. You go ahead and peel off the top layer there and get your, your bread wafer ready and, and then peel back that and get the juice ready. But, but when we celebrate communion, I want you to understand what we're really celebrating. As we celebrate communion, this is what we're talking about. This is what we're talking about. We are talking about the fact that we have chased away towards other gods, towards other things. We have made other things the God of our life, and we have gone after them. But God says, I want to buy you back. I love you that much. What great love the Father lavishes on us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. He will not leave us or forsake us. He buys us back. And so here's what he says. He says, I want you back so badly that I will send my one and only son to die in your place. And that's what we celebrate with the bread, right? We, we do this simply the way that Jesus did. On the night he was betrayed, sitting around the table um, on, on the ground with his disciples, he took the bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body. It is going to be broken as the payment for you. Do this to remember me. And when we eat, we remember. We remember that Christ died for our sins.
Because we are prone to wander, but God wasn't satisfied with our wandering. He wanted us home. And not only that, right? But he poured the cup and he passed it and he said, this cup, this is the blood. It's the new covenant found in my blood. When you drink it, remember me. You are ushered into this new thing. Remember through the giving of the Ten Commandments and through circumcision, right? God entered into a covenant with the people of Israel, But now he's entering into a new covenant. That means we don't follow the Mosaic covenant anymore. We follow a new covenant. He says, this is the new covenant found in my blood. You don't need salvation through circumcision and animal sacrifices. Your salvation is found through Jesus Christ who died on the cross for you and poured his blood out for you so that when you surrender and follow, you have forgiveness of sins and you are made right. You are prone to wander, but I love you so much I brought you back. He says, drink that and remember... And so that's what we do. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much that you loved us, that you care for us, that even though we are prone to wander, that you have brought us back. God, we thank you for the truth. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the signposts that help us understand the story of God laid out before us. We thank you. We thank you for the reminders, God, that, that we must take discipleship seriously and that we must keep you in the center so that we don't wander. And Father, we thank you for the truth that you have died to make us whole and to bring us home. Father, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for all things. Amen.